The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. The word of God speaks to us. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is God's word to us. Thanks, be to God. Thanks, love. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ Side. I get the pleasure and joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline. And that was my wife, Kristen, who just read the scripture, and she told me last night she was going to be reading, and to not razz her at all. She said, don't say anything silly when you're up there. (laughs) Why would I do a thing like that? See, I didn't even say anything. Um, Join with me in praying over this text. Lord, it's good to laugh, but these are weighty words in front of us today. Lord, we pray that you would carry us through this text. We pray that you would meet us in this text. These ancient scriptures were written a long time ago, but Lord, we would even dare to believe that they would have something for us here today. Send your spirit to open our ears to hear you speaking to us from the pages of your word. We need to hear from you today. Help us, we pray. Amen. Back in 2017, some of you might have seen Tom Nichols, a professor at the U.S. Naval War College, published a book with the provocative title, The Death of Expertise the campaign against established knowledge and why it matters. And in the book, Nichols tells a pretty funny story of an undergraduate student arguing with a renowned astrophysicist who was on campus to give a lecture. After seeing that the famous scientist wasn't going to change his mind, the college sophomore concluded in a huff, well, your guess is as good as mine, at which point the astrophysicist quickly replied, no, 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 my guesses are much, much better than yours. This kind of arrogance can make us all shake our heads when we see it playing out in front of us. But if we're honest, as a society, we're seeing it more and more. 
As a society, we're becoming increasingly likely to interrupt somebody rather than deeply listen to them and let them finish, especially if we don't like what they're saying. This is equally true in the Christian life. If we're honest here today, we've all been angry with Jesus. We've all turned our attention away from Jesus when we didn't like what he was saying. We've all been confused with how he's allowing our story to unfold, and sometimes we've even found ourselves filled with anger at him for how he's allowing our story to unfold. And so here in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verses 22 through 33, Mark thoughtfully crafts three scenes designed to help us see that we don't know the whole story. In our passage, we're going to see Jesus seeking to open our eyes to the reality that in the words of one author, we're not wise enough to know how our lives should go. Because we don't know the whole story Mark wants us to see, we need to let Jesus finish. So follow along with me as I reread that first scene found in verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I I see people, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So what can we learn from this first scene about what we really need from Jesus. Notice there in verse 22, the blind man's friends begged Jesus to heal their friend. We don't bend God's ears with our dutiful rituals. We bend his ear with our desperation. Jesus doesn't ask for our help to heal us. He just asks for our hunger. Because faith isn't some kind of currency as some people teach, that buys our healing from Jesus. Faith is just trust. It's the kind of trust that's driven by raw desperation. It's the kind of trust that as it bubbles up, it starts to break through our cynicism and our pride and our self-reliance and even our concern for our image and reputation. Faith is the kind of trust that grabs hold and it cries out and it doesn't even care that it's making a totally undignified spectacle of itself. So in light of this passage, it's good for us to ask ourselves this morning, are we more concerned what people will think of us if they catch us looking desperate, or are we more concerned with catching Jesus' attention? So the good news that our passage reminds us of is that we're always going to find Jesus at home when we need him most. Now, Why in the world does Jesus spit on this man's eyes? They're standing together in a field outside Bethsaida where Jesus has gently led this man away from the prospect of an unnecessary spectacle there in the town. And what he's probably doing is graciously offering the blind man a physical prompt to stir up his faith. Jesus' spit's not magic, but perhaps it engages the blind man's senses. Maybe it helps him overcome his fear and his cynicism. Jesus is after his faith, 
And he knows that he only needs to stir up the tiniest speck of it to accomplish his purposes. Because our faith doesn't need to be impressive, it just needs to be present. In the words of one author, you could be terrified of flying. You could hardly trust the pilot at all. And the person on the plane next to you could be settling in for a nap and trust the pilot completely. But as long as you got on the plane just like that guy, you're both going to experience the same flight. Jesus is just helping this guy get on the plane. We come to Jesus, like this man, wondering if he'll restore what we've lost. We always find him hospitable towards us. Hospitable towards us. Now, thoughtful people have asked, these stories of Jesus healing people are beautiful, but why doesn't Jesus heal everyone everywhere he goes in the Gospels? One answer is that in many instances, he pretty much does. We see repeated scenes in the Gospels describing him healing countless people for hours on end until he finally collapses from exhaustion, 100% God and 100% man. Another answer is that people's resistance to him, their suspicion, their fear, their hard-hearted lack of trust in him actively resists his healing touch. We already saw in Mark 6, he could do no mighty work in his hometown except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Sounds like nothing. You know, just healed some people, that's all. And he marveled because of their unbelief. There's yet another answer, perhaps the most important one for us as we seek to understand what Jesus' countless healings mean. And that's that Jesus healing anybody is actually a watershed announcement from God that he's ultimately going to heal everybody who trust in Jesus. We don't have to wonder as we read these stories if Jesus is indifferent to our suffering because he doesn't heal everyone. Because this is a man walking to Jerusalem in order to suffer unimaginably in our place so that someday, instead of just healing a man born blind on the way, he can banish the entire affront of blindness from every corner of his universe. In the meantime... Every blind person he does heal on the way is a reminder that Jesus won't stand for it. He won't stand for the rule and reign of sin and death. He's going to do something violent about it. Jesus has come to clean house. We're going to see as the gospel story unfolds that he's going to throw himself into the gears to stop this machine of death and decay that's been literally grinding on ever since we were first banished from our first home in Eden. So we see from this text that when we come to Jesus wondering if he'll restore what we've lost, we always find him homemaking, repairing the house. Consider a soldier from a liberating army who enters a prison camp to free the people in prison there, and he instinctively hands his sandwich to the first starving child he sees. Now think about an onlooker who doesn't understand the incredible significance and symbolism of that small act. And they might think, why didn't you bring food for everybody? Do you really think feeding one starving child is going to make a dent in the suffering that you see all around you? But of course, the true significance of that small act, that first liberating soldier giving a sandwich to the first starving child he sees, wouldn't be lost at all on all the other prisoners, would it? The true meaning and significance of that 
one small act would be simply help is here. It would never occur to the other prisoners to be jealous of that child taking the food. They'd all be too busy reeling from the sudden realization that they're not going to die in captivity as they thought. They're about to be fed and clothed and given medicine because rescuers have come to take them home. So on one level, it's profoundly meaningful in a very personal way that this blind man that we read about in Mark 8 can now see, particularly for him. But, but he didn't just get lucky while the rest of us needing healing have drawn the short straw by either rushing to meet Jesus too late as he enters town or by being born in the wrong century. We have to remember that the healing ministry that Jesus inaugurated is now available to all of us. And by God's grace, right here at Frontline Edmund, we have seen and will continue to see God powerfully healing people in our midst if we'll pray with expectation and perseverance for physical healing. But he doesn't always heal now, and he doesn't always heal me. But that doesn't mean that I'm unlucky, and it doesn't mean that I'm unloved, because healing's not a lottery, Instead, both the healing of this blind man in Bethsaida and the healing of my friend serve as this profound announcement to all of us that if we'll put our trust in Jesus, we're not going to die in captivity. For those of us who put our trust in Jesus, we're going to be fed and clothed and given medicine because a rescuer is coming to take us home. When we come to Jesus anxiously wondering if he's going to restore what we've lost, we find Jesus always hospitable, always homemaking. Because there's more to the story, he's actually come to restore us to our true home. So Mark says, hey, let Jesus finish. Now look with me at the second scene found in verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, uh, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So what can we learn from this second scene about why Jesus really came. Verse 21 says, he went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. That means that he's leaving Bethsaida on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to walk 25 miles north alongside the River Jordan to these villages. It's probably a 10-hour walk if it's done in one go, and he's redeeming the time. Everywhere he goes, Jesus is constantly graciously trying to stir up faith in the people around him, to trigger trust in himself. He's not asking here in verse 27, who do people say that I am, like an insecure celebrity monitoring their socials. Just like they're walking to these villages, he's gently trying to walk his disciples toward a full revelation of who he is. And because he's gentle and gracious, he's not demanding trust in himself like a dictator, even though he would be within his rights to do so, but he's seeking to awaken trust in himself 
like a poet or a painter labors to awaken their audience to beauty. And notice, again, how Jesus responds to the report. Verse 29, but who do you say that I am? This is revelatory because even now, today, for us, deflection is often our first and most common reaction when it comes to making up our minds about Jesus. But the hard reality is that none of us in this room can copy and paste when it comes to our own confession. We don't get a pass because we've taken the pulse of cultural consensus and concluded that since most people don't seem to take Jesus that seriously, then we're probably safe to not take him that seriously either. We can't hide behind other people's opinions. We can't copy and paste our parents' answer if we're still living under the roof or even our pastor's answer, even if it's really theologically correct. And your college professor might even try and delete and replace your parents' answer. But even still, Jesus is asking you today, who do you say that I am? And there's no way around it. You're going to have to answer him. You have to answer him for yourself. Nobody can do that for you. We come to Jesus wondering if he'll rescue us from our circumstances. We always find him working to wake up our faith. Verse 29, Peter courageously and correctly answers, you're the Christ, the Messiah, or Christ in the Greek means anointed one. To anoint someone is to set them apart and empower them for a specific divine purpose. And the prophets of God's people had been telling them for a thousand years now that God's anointed one, the Messiah, was someday going to come and mend their broken world. So was this him, they wondered? Was he finally here? They're under the thumb of Roman occupation. They're experiencing the indignity of being bossed around by a people who are lights out to the one true God. And so they're naturally wondering, could we be the generation who finally get to see God rescue his people? So why on earth, in light of that expectation, does Jesus, verse 30, strictly charge his disciples to tell no one about him? Why, back in verse 26, does he tell the blind man to not even enter the village after he's healed? Think about the fact that when you're trying to explain something counterintuitive, maybe even emotionally charged, and somebody breaks in and interrupts you, how do you instinctively respond? You say, let me finish. <laughs> let me finish. If his own disciples are taking all the Old Testament bits about the anointed one conquering Israel's enemies and leaving out all the bits about the anointed one coming as a suffering servant, if his own disciples are asking Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven when they have a rough day street witnessing, if his own disciples can't even think about his kingdom without worrying about the seating chart, then what about those who haven't been walking daily with Jesus for years? And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, hey, let me finish. I'm not done explaining myself. And this phenomenon is referred to by scholars as the messianic secret, which is a fine name, but Jesus' messianic secret is really Jesus' unfinished sentence. He's not trying to hide himself. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He's saying that he's just not done with the process of fully and finally revealing himself. He's come to reveal himself to us. What he's saying is, 
When the veil of the temple is torn at my crucifixion and the earth quakes, when I rise from the dead and make you breakfast and let you put your finger in my wounds and appear to 500 of you at once and ascend to my Father, then I'll have finished explaining myself. Then you'll finally understand why I came and what I'm trying to say to you. The emotion and the expectation that are swirling around Jesus are so sky high that nobody can hear him saying that he's not going to give them what they're longing for so badly precisely because he's going to give them something so much better and more permanent instead. And that's really the irony in Israel's fixation on political liberation. Here's a people with a thousand years of history behind them, and this wasn't their first political occupation. It wasn't their second. It wasn't even their third. They had been exiled and conquered, captured and occupied so many times because of their stubborn disobedience and refusal to follow God that by now they'd practically lost count. So if Jesus had given them what they thought they needed most and only alleviated their temporary discomfort, he would have doomed them and their children and their grandchildren to merely keep repeating the cycle of exile. We come to Jesus Wondering if he'll rescue us from our circumstances, we always find him working to wipe away our misguided agendas. Our temporary discomfort can become so painful that it starts to eclipse everything else around us. We start to forget that our spiritual condition is actually our deepest problem, that our spiritual condition is actually the only path to true and lasting joy. The Roman occupation may have felt like slavery, but their chronic rebellion and their ingratitude against God was their real prison. They were never going to be too truly free until they were set free from this prison of stubborn self-reliance. And Jesus is trying to help them understand that they don't need new circumstances as much as they need new selves. So Jesus says, let me finish. We come to Jesus understandably, anxiously, wondering if he's going to rescue us from our circumstances, what do we find? We always find Jesus working to wake up our faith, wipe away our agendas, because there's more to this story. He's actually come to rescue us from ourselves. So Mark's saying, let Jesus finish. Look at our third and final scene in verses 31 through 33. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this to them plainly. And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. If you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what can we learn from this third and final scene about what it really takes to follow Jesus? What it really takes to follow Jesus. Notice what God's own people are going to offer to God come in the flesh. Suffering, rejection, death. And tragically, They're going to offer him that suffering and that rejection and death as 
thanks as payment for him offering them healing and acceptance with the Father and eternal life. Verse 31 is the hinge point of Mark's entire gospel because Jesus has come to the crossroads. Here for the first time, he plainly explains to his disciples that he's starting down the long road to his own death. In Luke 9, 51, describing the beginning of this final deadly journey to Jerusalem, Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up to heaven, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 32, and so Peter naturally took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's going to set Jesus straight. He's going to correct Jesus' understandable misunderstandings about what's appropriate for God's anointed one. So Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter because Peter, urging Jesus to duck the cross, is the fruit of Peter, verse 33, setting his mind on the things of man, Jesus says, instead of the things of God. The things of man, or as another translation puts it, merely human things. The parallel account in Matthew's gospel, the 16th chapter, reads as follows, and notice how Jesus goes on to unpack and explain the things of man, or merely human things. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus went on to explain to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life is just going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's it going to profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? What could a man possibly give in exchange for his soul? Just like Peter tried to create a Christ without a cross here in Mark 8, all too often we're tempted to create a Christianity without crucifixion. Jesus' point, though, is that we can't be identified with Christ glorified without first being identified with Christ crucified. Jesus looks at Peter in verse 33 and says, get behind me, Satan, because Peter, in trying to offer Jesus a crown without a cross, is just giving the devil a day off. Satan was the first one to try and tempt Jesus with the prospect of a crown without a cross. In Jesus' wilderness temptation, at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, Satan comes and offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, every crown, for a small one-time fee of bowing down and worshiping him. You see, we, we come to Jesus wondering if he'll shield us from future suffering. We always find him pulling back the curtain on the only one who promises a crown without a cross. Stop and think about how often our misguided attempts to save ourselves or the people we love from suffering often just leads to even greater suffering and heartache. Man, we thought forgiveness and reconciliation was hard until we tried living with bitterness. (laughs) We thought being honest was hard until we tried keeping track of an ever-expanding web of lies. We we thought living in community was hard until we tried isolation and loneliness. It's a sober reflection 
of the kind that Jesus is inviting us to. And light of eternity is going to lead us to increasingly realize that the easy thing is actually just the hard thing in a bad disguise. And the seemingly hard thing is going to turn out to be far easier in the end. When we finally resign ourselves to the unshakable reality that there's no way out but through, we can start to channel our energy towards actually asking God to give us courage in the face of our fears instead of constantly looking for a way out. All too often, Christians conclude prayer doesn't work because they just keep asking God for an excuse to bail out when he keeps offering courage and grace to press on. We come to Jesus wondering if he'll shield us from future suffering, understandably. We always find him pointing to his own example of counting the cost. Just imagine how mad at Jesus you'll stay as long as you insist on seeing him only as the one who saves you not from your sins but from your discomfort and inconvenience. Contrary to what every advertisement you see this week will try and sell you, your most urgent need, my most urgent need, is not the preservation of our comfort, but the resurrection of our bodies. We come to Jesus anxiously wondering if he's going to shield us from future suffering. We always find Jesus pulling the curtain back on the only one who promises a crown without a cross and pointing us to his own example of counting the cost because there's more to the story. He's come to resurrect us through sharing in his suffering. So Mark is reminding us that we need to let Jesus finish. Listen to how Jesus finishes in Luke 24. That very day of Jesus' resurrection, two of his followers were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this uh, conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? The Bible's funny, y'all. Come on now. And he said to them, no, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth? A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and then how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And he said to them, he said, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not? necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, there's a counterfeit Christianity that keeps growing like a weed in the West that wants resurrection without suffering and rejection, but it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then and only then enter into his glory. I want you to pause for a moment 
and consider where in your life you're currently being tempted to pass off this kind of counterfeit Christianity. Maybe you want restoration of relationship with your spouse without the suffering and the death of saying you're sorry and humbly seeking their forgiveness and slowly and painstakingly regaining their trust. Maybe you want freedom from addiction without having to be inconvenienced in any way. Maybe you're ignoring the real financial needs of your brother or sister because you know they've made poor choices, so you've justified not helping them because, after all, they don't deserve it. Maybe you want growth and godliness as long as it takes less effort than you give to exercising your physical body. Maybe you're trying to make deals with God that sound like this. It's far too embarrassing to confess my sin to my brothers or sisters. Can I just skip that part if I pretend I'll never do it again? Maybe you're trying to convince yourself that God owes you an apology because your life's actually gotten harder since you became a Christian and you feel tricked. (laughs) Even though, if you're honest, there's not a single verse you can point to in all of Scripture that promises temporary comfort and convenience for those who follow Jesus. Ask yourself, where in your life are you tempted to pass off a counterfeit Christianity that's all crowns with no crosses? And then hear me say to you, not shame on you, (laughs) grace on you, grace to you. There's a better story being written. There's better news than that. Jesus' tone is compassion, not scolding. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory This is what Paul's really saying in Philippians 3, is it not? Whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it's for his sake that I've actually suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from rule keeping but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on that kind of desperate faith and all this so that I might know him and the power of his resurrection sure but even to share in his sufferings I'm even willing to become like him in his death because by any means possible I want to attain the resurrection from the dead Paul says, by any means possible, I want to gain Christ. Not comfort, but Christ. Paul says, consider the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, being found in him. So Paul says, I signed up to share in his sufferings with no hesitation, no regrets, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I'll gladly walk through the door marked suffering. I'll follow him down into death so that I might dare to even imagine that I could also someday share in his glory. Discomfort, inconvenience, suffering, to be sure. But Mark's saying, let Jesus finish. It's necessary. It's necessary that we should suffer these things so that we might enter into his glory.
Lord, help us to take you at your word that what you say is true. Lord, for the places in our heart that are resistant and banged up, Lord, where we've carried cynicism and bitterness into this room, even suspicion of you, help us to hear you saying not shame on you, but grace on you, grace to you. Wash us clean with the water of your word. Make our hearts believe what we've stopped believing because we've gotten so banged up. Open our eyes to see the worth and the value of the glory that lies before us. Only your spirit can help us do that divine math. So we ask you, we know this isn't merely a cognitive process. We need you to shine a light in our hearts. We need you to give us a new taste, new appetites, new desires that'll drown out the old ones and make them look sad and tired by comparison. Stir our affections for you, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.